Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. Uh, I think uh, I forgot to mention a notable event that happened, I think, two weeks ago. We had our 100th episode, and I think Nissan was the 100th. So thank you to Nissan, and thank you to everybody for being uh, listeners to the show. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, and you can see all of the work associated and links associated with our episodes on our website, onstrategyshowcase.com. We've done a few episodes on B2B marketing in the past. I know we've done one with TBWA Shia Day and their new B2B practice, and I'm sure a couple of others. Uh, and it seems to me that in business-to-business marketing, it, it faces some unique challenges, and, and key among them is a skeptical view of marketing's ability to build a business. And this isn't the case in every situation. I mean, I think large marketers have a little more of an tendency to believe in the ability of marketing to both build the brand and build the business. But I think in general, in maybe small to mid-size brands, there is more of a um, a view that marketing uh, is maybe more of, a, of an expense than it might be an investment. And uh, the kind of question is really, is marketing simply a producer of sales support materials or is it a generator of sales and, uh, and sales leads? And is that definition of a sales lead something that is served and generated immediately or something that is surfaced over time? Now, these are fair questions, but the problem is, unlike in business to consumer or B2C, there isn't a ton of data or frameworks to help marketers or their agencies make the business case to the C-suite for more or for different types of funding allocations. So the result has been a ton of opinions and counter-opinions that in Salesforce-driven cultures can lead to sort of lob-sided arguments and discussions. And so into that vacuum has come the B2B Institute at LinkedIn. Their goal is on improving the alignment of finance and marketing. And if you're someone who has ever worked with a B2B client, you know how critically important that is. And I know that's obvious, and it's the same in B2C, but it's particularly profound and, and has a particularly strong need in B2B, given the challenges. So the B2B Institute at LinkedIn has partnered with what we know as sort of recognized thought leaders in various fields of marketing effectiveness, including Jenny Romaniuk, Byron Sharp, John Dawes, and Savar Fakigno at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. And together, they've produced a series of thought leadership reports that are available for free to anyone in the industry. You can actually Google the B2B Institute at LinkedIn and do it that way because the URL is too complicated for me to list here, but you can get all of the reports for free on their website. A number of the um, the um, reports I've seen, but one in particular got my attention recently. It's the uh, How B2B Brands Grow. And a number of the concepts discussed in that report will feel familiar to readers of B2C effectiveness literature, but now we hear about them in the context of B2B. And what struck me particularly was a, uh, or, and it struck me as something new, and maybe, maybe it's just new to me, but it was John Dawes' 95-5 rule and the effect it may have on how you think about the traditional marketing funnel. It's actually one of uh, four to five key points that are made in this report. Uh, so here to talk about it and other key elements in the um, uh, How B2B Brands Grow report is uh, John Lombardo. Uh, John is head of research at LinkedIn's B2B Institute. 
And by his own admission, what the Institute is doing in this sort of first phase of its work is it's gathering and aggregating existing thought leadership in the in the realm of marketing effectiveness. It then plans to begin to do its own original uh, reporting and generation of papers and perspectives and thought leadership as, uh, as time moves on here. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. John Lombardo, LinkedIn's B2B Institute. Enjoy. First of all, let's talk about um, the uh, the B2B Institute at LinkedIn. Tell us about what that is, how long it's been around, and, and what is its purpose? Yeah, it's it's a it's a think tank, although you know that's a very heavy word. I think we're trying to become a think tank, but in order to become a well-respected think tank, you've got to do many years of good work across the world. So we're working towards kind of earning that name, but we are a think tank funded by LinkedIn. And our focus is really on B2B marketing and helping B2B marketers make better decisions and link marketing in particular to finance. And a lot of what we have done so far, you know, is really try to find the smartest, you know, academics or practitioners in B2B and then work with those experts to, you know, bring insights to market that just make our customers smarter about what they do and, you know, more productive at what they do. So why do you feel B2B marketing needs a champion? Yeah, it's a good question. There just isn't that much research into B2B marketing and and either what makes it the same or what makes it different. You know, conversely, there's a ton of research into B2C marketing. Most B2B firms are not marketing led. They don't invest in marketing research. So there just isn't all that much research into B2B, what makes it the same, what makes it different. You know, um, we actually were talking to an academic down in, Australian named Nico Neumann, who wrote a great paper on the quality of data in B2B. And one of the the papers that he looked at and read his paper on B2B uh, ad data, um, you know, it basically said academic research has not kept pace with the growth uh, of an investment in B2B advertising. And I think that essentially explains it, right? The research has not kept pace with the growth. And so we're trying to do more research to, you know, not just keep pace with the growth, but power the growth. What have been some of the the outputs? that have come out of the Institute so far? And then what do you want those outputs to do within the industry? We started actually out of a customer question or a customer request, which was just, hey, you guys know a lot about B2B or you should know a lot about B2B. Can you come talk to us about trends in B2B? So we put together this report called B2B Trends, which was just a look at kind of all of the LinkedIn data around hiring, marketing, and selling. Those are the three lines of business. We took that to the client. Client loved it and said, hey, will you take this to our counterparts in Chicago? Took it to Chicago. They said, great, will you take it to Miami? Great, take it to Miami, take it to London. So we essentially took it on a in a world tour, this idea of B2B trends, which is something we've done for five years now. And we realized that it was just generalizably interesting, interesting and useful to our clients, right? It worked across market, worked across company, and it worked across customer. So it kind of was replicating in a variety of different environments and, and industries. And so we started out just doing our own kind of B2B trend stuff, but that was almost all looking at other people's work and then kind of coming up with our own pithy trends around this kind of stuff. You know, one of the things we looked at very early on was the 60-40 rule. And that led probably to our first big piece of research, which was with Bennett and Field, where we looked at principles of growth in B2B marketing. We had them look at the IPA data bank, which doesn't have that many B2B cases. Yet another example where the research yeah. does not keep pace with the industry. But you know, there was you know something like 60 cases, and many of them were hybrid B2B, B2C. But that was kind of our first big piece of work, I would say, was just partnering with Bennett and Field. We learned a lot from them. 
you know, have great respect for them. Is that part of the report that Les Bennett rolled out about six to eight months ago on B2B? uh, I would imagine uh, if, if not, you know, it certainly informed, I would imagine, a lot of it because that yeah. was work that they did for us. So, you know, and I don't think Bennett and Field have done a ton of work on B2B. Uh, I'm sure they've done some work on B2B, but I don't think they've done a ton of work on B2B. So I would imagine at least informed it in part. So uh, the the report that I have in front of me is how B2B brands grow that uh, you guys were good enough to share with me. Is that a publicly available document or is that is that a, uh, do, do, do listeners have to pay for that? Just as a reference point before we, we get have into nothing- it. We have nothing that you have to pay for. Everything is freely available, ungated on our website. So, and that report you're talking about is kind of if the Bennett and Field work, we started with trends, you know, which looked at a lot of different ideas. And then we partnered with Bennett and Field specifically to learn more about 60-40 rule and about the other principles of growth they talk about. And then that led us ultimately to partnering with Ehrenberg Bass, you know, who are pretty famous within the industry. And that is the how brands grow, how B2B brands grow research. And that looked at trying to replicate a lot of the ideas that we know from the B2C world, trying to replicate that in B2B, because there's this belief from our customers in particular that B2B is radically different from B2C and things that work in B2C don't work in in B2B. But what we found is ideas like mental and physical availability, double jeopardy, duplicate purchase, they all replicate in B2B just like they did in B2C. So you know, that's kind of foreshadowing a bit of, I think, what we'll talk about. But that's kind of been our journey is to go from looking at other people's ideas, working with Bennett and Field, working with Ehrenberg Bass, and now starting to do our own, you know, first party research using a lot of the things we've learned, but looking at LinkedIn data. So I think, you know, th- there's a lot of there's a lot of meat in this report. And um, I'm not sure exactly where to start. I have a, I have a sense of it, but I, I'm, I'm happy to have you help direct us into this. But there are I will say that there's one of the first things that struck me about this is the idea of um, looking at the funnel in a completely different way. And and I think to your point, this although this is talked about in the context of B2B, I I, I think it has a ton of, of applicability to B2C. But today we're in B2B lens. Um, I think it's a good place to, to start to talk about uh, some of the the more notable factors. I, I love the way you've tipped the funnel and suggested we think differently about it. And and for for those when we're talking about when we're talking about the funnel, we're obviously talking from the top of the funnel and awareness all the way down the various stages stages to conversion. But you're suggesting in B two B another way of thinking about the funnel. Uh, maybe we should talk about that and its implications first. Yeah, sure. You know the traditional funnel or the classic funnel you know, as I understand it, isn't even a marketing funnel. It's a sales funnel. And it is meant to move, it's a mental model for moving somebody in a face-to-face conversation through a sales conversation and getting them to buy on the spot. You know, it comes from, I think, the 20s. Tom Roach wrote a great piece on this in Marketing Week. That's that's a sales funnel. That's not a marketing funnel. Um, Marketing is not, in my opinion, about non-scale, which is what a one-to-one sales conversation is. Marketing is about scale. So one to kind of all or one to the entire market. So I think you just need to understand that the funnel isn't a marketing funnel. It's a sales funnel. A marketing funnel 
in my view, would be more customer centric. That's what marketing should be about. Marketing is about the market. It's about market orientation. It's about the customer. Let me give you one, one, one thought on that, because I think that the way that uh, we've been sort of programmed to think about it in the marketing world, and, and for those who aren't familiar, the idea of that, of that funnel was that we were supposed to apply different types of communication at different stages. So we almost talk about it also as a customer journey. And our assumption is that the customer goes from point one, point two, point three, goes through all of these stages. And so it, that's how we've thought about it as a marketing funnel. Um, so, but go ahead with your thought. Yeah. And I, and I, I just think the language and the framing is, is not framing or language I would use, you know, because right. if you think about it, like a customer does not say, I'm at the top of the funnel. I'm at the bottom of the funnel. However, customers do say that they're in market for buying a product or a service. And then there are other customers who are not in market for the product or service, and they don't think about the category whatsoever. They're literally out of the market and not thinking about the market at all. So I think this, this idea of not having kind of a funnel that goes from top to bottom, but a funnel that goes from left to right, and you have some small percentage of customers who are in the market, and then the majority of customers who are out of the market, I think this is a more customer-centric view of, of how people actually buy and how people think of themselves in the buying journey. So, you know, I recognize, I'm all for mental models. I'm all for simple heuristics that help us to think more clearly. And the funnel does that in some sense. I would just say that this funnel is more customer-centric and marketing should be about the customer. And, and so what we're, what we're talking about here graphically is that the, the funnel is now tipped on its side and the and the uh, the tip of the funnel, rather than the sort of mouth of the funnel, represents a smaller percentage of the audience who you think, who you suggest we should think of as those who are in market and those who are out of market. Tell us about tell us about the importance of that distinction. You know, we should root things in the data, and what the data actually says. I flew down to to Adelaide a couple of years ago. I met with John Dawes, and John Dawes was talking about. We actually got to talking about the sixty forty rule a little bit. He was like, well, you know, I think a better way to think about it is more like, you know, 95.5. There's good evidence that only 5% of customers are in market at any point and the remaining are out market, you know, so it's more like that. That's what the academic research would tell us based on customer interviews. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. I've never heard anybody say that. I mean, he just said it like it didn't even matter. Like it was common knowledge to everybody. And I, I, you know, I was like, well, this is fascinating because everybody's obsessed with the 60-40 rule. Right. It sounds like it's more rooted in actual customer behavior. So we asked him to write that 95.5 rule up, you know, and, and it's a rule, it's a heuristic actually more than it's a rule, but it is rooted in the customer experience, the customer journey. So I would say, you know, A, look at the customer journey and then kind of off of that actual data, you can evolve a theory, right? And so the 95.5 rule is a good theory, a good kind of heuristic. Um, and so that tells you how to think about your customer base. Most in any period are in are out market, 95% on average you know, 90%, 80%, something like that. And then the remaining better in market. So you've got now this kind of in-market view, out-market view, but it gives you a view of the entire, entire category. So that's the customer-centric view of this. There's another, I think, very important advantage to thinking about the funnel from the customer perspective. So number one, you got a better view of the customer. Number two, if the customer is your primary customer, your secondary customer within your organization in B2B is finance. Finance determines your budget, Finance determines your compensation. So either professionally from a budgetary perspective or personally from a compensation perspective, marketers should be deeply invested in the relationship between marketing and finance. Companies are valued on their cash flows. Generally speaking, 20% of a company's stock price is based on cash flows they can expect to get in kind of the short term, and 80% is actually based on the long term. So contrary to what most people think, Wall Street is not short term, Wall Street is long term. 
So when you have this view of kind of the customer, which says some small percentage are in market, like let's say maybe at maximum 20% are in market, 80% out market, then you can say, wait a minute, that's interesting because cash flows are also 20% kind of short-term and 80% long-term. So you can see how it works. Your short-term customers provide you your current cash flows. Your longer-term customers provide you your future cash flows. You've got to reach both to balance short-term and long-term cash flows. So your company continues to grow and thrive. But that's now a, a customer-centric view that you've tied to a cash flow-centric view. That's very powerful because the number one problem marketers have is showing the impact of marketing on finance. So that's, I think, interesting. There's also a third element that is also valuable. It's not only a customer-centric view and a cash flow-centric view. I would say it's a better view for the company as well because you actually don't want company, you don't want different functions doing the same thing. When people do the same things, they will compete. You'd rather have division of labor. And division of labor, I think, is very, very much around the current customers that we know. Let's have sales talk to them. But then there's a bunch of customers that we don't know. Those are the out-market customers. Marketing should talk to them. So Current customers, sales talks to, talks to the end market customers and tries to convert them. That's the 20% of cash flows. The remaining scalable group that you don't know, that's marketing talking to them. So this kind of 95-5 rule, and you know, again, it's just a kind of rule. It could be 80-20, something like that. It's, it's a customer-centric view. It's a cash flow-centric view. And it actually explains organizationally how you'd be better off dividing you know, your focus to get maximum results. So there's lots of ways I like this funnel, which we call the cash flow funnel, better than the traditional funnel. Yeah. And then there's obviously significant implications for how marketing communications are deployed. When we talk about the, the categories of performance marketing and brand marketing, uh, it, makes, it, it makes sense here in terms of which are deployed against which target. And it, it helps make the case and vice versa for what uh, with what Lesman and Peter Thiel have said in, in terms of the 60-40 rule, where they're advocating for 60% roughly towards marketing uh, and 40% towards performance, a brand brand marketing versus performance marketing. So is how do you think about the 60-40 rule compared to the 95-5 rule? I mean, do you, do you see it that way? It's like, deploy your performance marketing against in B2B? Do you deploy your performance marketing against the 5%? Or do you suggest that there is no performance marketing deployed? Well, it just, it just depends on how you want to define performance marketing. You know, I don't think, I don't define performance marketing in the way that other people define performance marketing. Performance marketing to me is actually in some ways a jab at traditional marketing, right? It says those people do art. I don't do art. I do science. I'm a performance marketer. By definition, those people are non-performance marketers. So I think it's actually, you know, marketers are in competition with each other and performance marketers have positioned themselves to be the smart, sophisticated, scientific marketers who steal budget from the other. And I actually think that's not a useful model because in fact, there's lots of good single source data showing that a wonderful brand ad, a great brand ad will drive sales within seven days. So I think the best ad, the most performant ad is actually an incredible brand ad. That's not how most people would think about it. Most people would think about performance marketing as being some sort of lead generation ad that gets you to buy right away. But you know, the, the beauty of a great brand ad is it not only gets you to buy in the immediate, it also is something that could be memorable for many, many years. And so it can deliver performance for 5, 10, 50 years if it's a great ad. So I think actual performance marketing is some balance of the two. But, you know, but there's no question in my mind that if I had to choose either a great brand ad or a great lead gen ad, the actual performance marketing ad or message is actually the brand ad. So, um, so an example of that might be for those of us in the U.S., uh, Geico, I've always thought of as being a, a great 
a, a great performance, in other words, lead generation, short-term lead generation that's done in a branded way. Is, is that the right way to think about it in your mind? Yeah, I do think it's just, I think it is useful to, to again, keep this in-out market construct in mind. And you can see Geico very clearly does this exceptionally well. They have a very specific message for in-market buyers, which is save 15% in 15 minutes. That is in some sense, let's call it like the lead gen or the in-market message. And that will be, that's a rational message that is tightly targeted and that is measured using a sales or CPL, cost per lead, cost per, you know, marketing qualified lead, sales qualified lead, cost per lead metric. The out-market message for Geico is simply Geico has a gecko. That gecko is likable and memorable. And you link that likable, memorable gecko to car insurance. And that message is simply just to entertain you. So in some ways, this is, it could be thought of in a lot of ways, but that's kind of their two-speed or two-prong approach to marketing. You know, some percentage of it is for the people that are in market and that's 15 and 15. And for most people, it's not that. It's the Geico Gecko, which they spend $2 billion a year advertising. And the Geico Gecko is probably as famous as, I don't know, like Brad Pitt or Oprah Winfrey at this point. So, you know, they do have that 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 balance, that, that two-prong approach is probably like the right way to, have two messages for the two different types of folks in and out market to drive sales in the short term and also the long term. So the one of the questions I'm sure are in people's minds is if you're trying to make this case to to uh, the C-suite within your organization, how do you quantify the in-market segment? Do you have any tips on how best to do that? Well, the, I think the in-market segment is very easy to quantify, you know, because you do have all of these signals, you know, clicks, let's call them, right? And, and clicks are pretty easy to, to visualize and they're pretty easy to count and then they're pretty easy to target. The harder part is the outmarket folks where you don't have the same intense signal, right? Because a click is not the dominant thing people do on the internet. The dominant thing people do on the internet is just see something or pay attention to something. And, and you don't get any signal really off of that in, in a way that you can retarget or you know, remarket or try to convert. So it's harder actually to like the the click metrics are kind of the sales metrics. They're easy to met to visualize and to measure. It's the outmarket memory metrics that require more of a survey and a benchmarking kind of at the start of the year and maybe like a benchmarking at the end of the year to figure out if you actually lifted those metrics. But those are the harder thing to do, you know. And and people don't have either like the knowledge or the patience or the budget to invest in those sort of like what I'd call like sales metrics are for the in-market folks. And then the memory metrics are for the out-market folks. The memory metrics that actually drive most brand decisions actually are much harder to measure, I would say. So the way I the way I first thought about this when I looked at it was that for for marketers who are investing a significant percent, B2B marketers who are in, and probably B2C, who are investing the significant portion of their their uh, budget in performance marketing, that there much of that is being wasted because of this 95-5 rule, which is that most people are out of market at any particular time. And that that, that because they're not conscious of being in a, in a buying situation, anything that is communicated to them with a short-term angle uh, is wasted. Um, is that a way to think about it or, or how would you make that case? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, mar marketers are mostly in the business of memory building, you know, and, and it's memories that determine sales. So it, it's, I mean, like a way I've come to think about this lately is 
the kind of dominant model of marketing and marketing measurement or advertising measurement today, it's all last click attribution. So, you know, you, you click on some ad and then wherever you click, it gets the credit. And obviously Google has famously profited from this. Um, but there's obviously a step before you, you, you click on the ad. It's you have to actually think of something in your mind and then you have to go to Google and then you have to click on the thing or search for the thing and then click on the thing. So all of the, there's a sequence here that matters. Your mind actually generates, you know, based on the situation you're in the search term. So your, your memory is actually where your, the original search happens, the primary search happens, and then the secondary search happens on Google. And because it's easy to visualize what happens on Google, Google gets all the credit, right? Um, but that's not the right way to think about it. I mean, th- I don't know who said this. I was talking to Paul Feldwick recently, and I thought he said it, but he said he didn't say it. But there's this phrase out there floating on the internet which is that the the best search engine is still the one in your mind. And I think that's actually the key idea, right? Like you need to win the mind to win the market. And right now we're giving people all the credit for winning the market when in fact it was winning the mind that that determined who won the market. So I think people have kind of like a reverse a reverse causation here. Um, and we should focus on building memories. And if we build memories, you know, linked to key situations and a variety of key situations, then we get the most sales. But that's not actually how things are are measured or thought about today, um, but but I think we need to kind of write that. So another interesting point. Uh, moving on here, I think another interesting point is the fact that uh, you guys are stating from your work with uh, Ehrenberg Bass and others that awareness is not enough. That um, uh, many marketers are tracking awareness of their brand, but that's not enough in in your your guys' mind. You talk about it in terms of of the Ehrenberg Bass term, uh, mental availability. So it, it's for, in simple terms, it's, it's the idea of moving from what do customers think of my brand to thinking about, about it in terms of when do customers think of my brand. So this is the category entry points. And, and an example that you bring up that I'd love you to spend a minute or two talking about is Salesforce. This is sort of a key case study that you guys talk about as a sort of an ideal example of this. Can you tell us about that? The problem Salesforce had, and they told us this, is that everybody heard the name Salesforce. So they're going to score extremely high on brand awareness. You know, brand awareness, a lot of smart people will just say, it's actually just telling you the size of the company. It's not really telling you anything more than that. So, you know, brand awareness studies kind of fail in that way. But when you ask questions about the different situations, you find that Salesforce is strong in some places, like they people know the name, but they're not as strong in other places. Like people don't know how to use their products and services to help their business. So you get a more granular view of your actual brand strength and the situations in which you're strong and weak. And then it allows you maybe to spend more of your money investing in places where you are not as strong to build a wider, stronger network of associations. And essentially like each situation or association drives a sale. So the more situations you come to mind in, like the more sales you're going to have. But yeah, it's a very different view, certainly of the view that, that I think marketers have generally taken you know, but as we learn more about memory and more about behavior, we can start to be smarter about what we do. And this is just kind of like the natural evolution, it seems like from, like, it seems like I'm not a historian of, of marketing, but I like to kind of read a little bit about it. And like, my general take is it seems like it's gone from awareness to kind of salience to now kind of availability and even availability can be even further considered in terms of like specific situations, you know, and that's kind of, you know, category entry points. So that feels like the chain of at least, you know, ideas to me. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it, the way I've always thought about it, I've thought about product marketing or service marketing and corporate marketing, right? So if you're if you're in if you're in a particular um, if you're in a particular like IBM, for example, so IBM might have a brand campaign for IBM, but then it also might have particular segment campaigns for its service offerings. Uh, but I, I think what I'm beginning to hear about in the last six months is more sort of sense, more sort of opinions from people that they can come together in effective ways. And um, I'm a little bit skeptical about it because I, I worry that it's hard for I, it's hard for marketers to do that blend well. I've had conversations with, with people much smarter than than me about this. You know, I think there's kind of two things you could think about here. There are there are there is category entry point marketing we could call it, which is I market the situations, and maybe that's a bit more tied to you know to sales and to rational messaging. Then there's another kind of marketing I'll call fame marketing which would be more like the Geico Gecko. Like I'm just putting a Gecko on screen or I'm just putting IBM on screen. I think you probably can use both and, and do need to use both. I don't think it's one or the other. I think that they work together. Like yes. The thing that holds them together is the brand identity, right? But, 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 but other than that, like, you know, there are lots of, like the brand is the thing that stays the same, but like the different messages you market, whether it's IBM broadly or situation specifically, like they kind of work together as long as they're branded properly and consistently. So I, I think these things are, the world is a complex world, complex adaptive system is the phrase I like that people use, you know, and, and so marketing isn't quite as simple as we have a single positioning. We more have multiple positionings based on you know, the key category entry points that matter. And we tie it all together with the brand in a consistent, you know, kind of endurable way. But it's, you know, the stuff isn't as simple as anybody wants it to be. I want to go back to your your tipping of the funnel. Uh, I love that. I love that sort of, uh, that 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 sort of image of it, the the 95-5 rule. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we could maybe surface a couple of thoughts to get to to answering this question, which is I'm imagining myself as a marketer in front of a CFO and I have to, I have to make the case for, uh, I have to make the case for how many, what percentage of our target market roughly is in market versus out of market. How am I going to make that case? Can can you help any marketers understand how best to make that in a way that's right for their category? Any suggestions about how to be able to explore it and come up with a, a, a ratio that makes sense? Yes. Yes. I think there are ways to do it. I mean, the number one way to think about it is, you know, like surveys are no longer in fashion, but you should go survey, you know, I don't know, 300 potential buyers and understand, you know, how often they buy the category. And if you can understand how often they buy the category, if they buy it once every three years, it means one in three people is in category this year. That means 33% of your people are in market and 66% of your people are out market. And now you understand the balance between, let's call it kind of like lead generation and brand generation, right? Like that's a simple way to do with surveys. You know, LinkedIn, we could also help you to do that. You could come to us and say, our audience is marketers. There's 4 million marketers in the US. We can look at some set of signals on like things they click and things they read that might indicate they're in market. That's going to be some percentage of the category. Then the remaining marketers who are not exhibiting that kind of signal, you know, then those are people that are out market for you. And so you could break it down in that way. So you can do it with surveys. You can kind of do it with intent or non-intent data. Those are two ways you could essentially say, here's what I believe my in-market customer base to be. Here's what my out-market customer base 
is likely to be. And then you could even go like many steps farther and say, based on that mix, I'm going to run, you know, 33% of my ads are going to have the save 15% in 15 minutes, but the other 66% is going to just be the gecko, you know, and I'm going to distribute that against my audience. And I'm going to make sure that we reach, you know, with a tightly targeted rational message, the 33%, and then the kind of broad reach messaging with the gecko is going to be the other 66%. That's the distribution bit. And then we'll measure that and we'll measure for the in-market folks, you know, how many leads do we get and what's the cost per lead? And then for the other folks, we're going to run a survey at the end of the year and say, you know, at the start of the year, 20% of you remember the gecko, but now 30% of you remember the gecko. And so I can show, you know, that I'm not just driving short-term sales, but I'm building, you know, long-term, long-lasting, durable, uh, you know, basically brand assets. So like we think of it as strategy, creative distribution measurement. I tried to outline there for you, like how you would define the 33-66 split and then apply that to strategy, creative distribution measurement. That's kind of like how we would coherently think about making the argument quantitatively to finance. You know, loyalty has become questioned a lot in marketing circles. So just those who are just huge fans of it, and there's those who think it, it's becoming a rising cost of business that isn't really driving enough uh, the, the returns that are expected. How do you think about customer loyalty as uh, as a um, as a determinant of future future spending and future growth? Yeah, I mean, the stuff that Jenny Romanik has shared with us on loyalty indicates that loyalty is mostly out of the control of the marketer. You know, there is natural churn for a variety of reasons. You lose budget, you switch companies, you retire. There's nothing that a marketer can do to control that kind of churn or manage that kind of churn. So, you know, it's it seems fruitless or pointless to focus on something that's out of your control. So I would say that's number one, you know, like a lot of the problem with focusing on retention is it's trying to focus on something that's out of your control. I mean, obviously the bigger problem is that it's not where the majority of growth comes from. It comes from acquisition. But, you know, I think in general, a way to think about the Ehrenberg Bass work is if you focus on, let's say, the three biggest category entry points and you reach everybody in the market, current buyers and potential buyers with that messaging, all the research on category entry points shows that you will both, companies that have more category entry points or are linked to more category entry points, they both acquire more customers and they retain more customers. So taking this broad category targeting approach and focusing the messaging around the three biggest or most important buying situations, it will both, like with one strategy, you can both solve in some sense for acquisition and retention. You know, I think everybody else is overcomplicating it a little bit by having very specific strategies for loyalty and very specific strategies for acquisition. You know, you could make the argument that simpler and singular is a little bit more effective. And, and a lot of the data I've seen on category entry points seems to, to bear that out. I'm sure that's an oversimplification, what I just said, but you know, complexity is cost and, you know, a simpler singular strategy reaching everybody with a couple of key messages seems like a, a simpler and maybe higher ROI strategy. And, and the data seems to back that. How have B2B marketers been responding to your work so far when you, when you present it or when you promote it, um, how is it being digested? Do you feel? Unevenly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice, honest answer. Is, is the way I would put it. You know, I think most of these things, they operate in clusters. And I would say the two kinds of clusters we seem to be very successful in is there are a series of um, of companies that are just for whatever reason, more interested in kind of adopting new ideas. And so kind of like companies, some companies, especially tech companies seem more open to a lot of this stuff, more interested in a lot of this stuff. And then there are just clusters of individuals who generally have read some version of how brands grow or Bennett and Field 
you know, um, you know, or Jenny Romaniak, you know, and they are interested in it. So like there's some companies that are interested in it, or there are some individuals that are interested in it. We have a piece of research coming out with Jenny Romaniak in a couple of months on category entry points in B2B. And I think it's going to be very, very powerful, you know, because you all, you, you don't there, you know, a lot of people just kind of say acquisition is all that matters. Loyalty doesn't matter. I can tell you for a fact that most of our customers think loyalty is more important than acquisition, right? So that's just, that just like, I know the data doesn't suggest that, but that's what they think. What you have to say is whether you care, the two big situations you seem to care about are acquisition and retention. And what the new paper we have says in some sense is whether you care about acquisition or you care about retention, you care about category entry points because category entry points deliver both. They deliver both acquisition and retention. So, you know, it's in some sense, it's like very meta, but the category entry point paper is a little bit, you know, again, drinking its own champagne. It's talking to both sides of that conversation and saying, you know, whatever one you care about or whichever one you care about, like we'll help you with either. And we'll give you the data, the evidence you need to take to your sales teams, your finance teams to support budget, to do both, you know, and, 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 and this is how to think about it and how to kind of very procedurally go out and do it. What's next that we can look forward to coming out of you guys and how, uh, is there a URL you can send people to that where they can learn more about what you guys are working on? Yeah. I mean, then you, you may have picked up on kind of the red thread throughout the conversation, but we are extremely, extremely interested in what I would call the alignment of finance and marketing. I really think that that is the thing that marketing has to figure out is how do I work more closely with finance? Yeah. Make the case that I need a bigger budget and I have to spend the budget in a very specific way that is focused on situations and focused more on future buyers. And that will give us the kind of durable stream of, of future cash flows we need to continue to grow and to thrive. So we're very focused on that conversation. We've been working a lot with a gentleman named Chris Burgrave, who is the former CMO of AB InBev, I think knows more about finance and marketing than probably anybody in the world. He's actually set up a finance and marketing center of excellence at University of Maastricht in the Netherlands. That's a really big focus for us. And a lot of the things we're talking about here, one of the things I really like about CEPs, it's about situations and situations can be linked to sales and can be quantified. And you can then go into your sales team and your finance team and say, I'm talking about these three big situations because here's the total addressable market and here's the expected revenue we can generate. So you can be very, very commercial in how you frame your, your marketing. But then that allows you, because you're being so specific about the commercial implications, then to be creative within the commercial constraints. I think everybody needs to kind of figure out how to be creative within commercial constraints. I think CEPs does that. And then CEPs linked more towards kind of like financial outcomes, that finance and marketing angle, which we're going to be exploring a lot in the next year is going to be, you know, I'm very excited about it. I think it'll be really valuable to all of our customers and, um, and our potential customers. So that's, I guess, the big focus. And you can find all the research that's been referenced today on our website. Just Google B2B Institute, LinkedIn, B2B Institute, LinkedIn, and then you can just click on the link there. When you click on that link, it wasn't Google that, that generated that <laughs> click. It was this conversation that generated that click. So make sure you do proper attribution. Attribute the mind, not the Google. <laughs> I love it. It's John Lombardo, head of research at the B2B Institute at LinkedIn in New York City. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll see everyone in the next episode.